and welcome to our latest edition of the GRC and Cybersecurity Podcast. In today's episode, in our Leaders in Cyber and Risk series, we have very special guest, Jake Benares. Hi, Jake. Can you first introduce yourself and tell listeners a little bit about what your company does? Yeah, my name is Jake Benares. I'm the VP of Security, Compliance and IT at Wistic. We're a company based out of Salt Lake, Utah in the US, and the focus is on vendor risk management, and particularly automation in that space, the concept of creating a vendor ecosystem eliminating the kind of 200 question questionnaires we've had for several years and getting to a place where we can do things kind of zero touch instantly, know what the risks are on our supply chain and avoid them. Fantastic. So before we get any, bit, any further into the interview, can you tell listeners about what you get up to, up to outside of work? Yeah, I'm a bit of a sports nut. So I'm a massive road biker. I live right on the edge of the Peak District in Sheffield. So I spend most of my time either fighting my way up hills or avoiding cars on the way down them. I uh, play a lot of football. I'm a, a big Sheffield United fan, season ticket holder there with my kids, which have two, an eight-year-old little boy who is absolutely football mad, and a four-year-old little girl, and their wife who likes to run. So between all of those things, I'm generally fairly busy. So there's a lot of things to keep busy with kids, football, <laughs> cycling. <laughs> so you mentioned what your role is, but can you tell us exactly how your role came about, what you do within the organisation, and how it's different from maybe some other roles that you've done? Yeah, I think this is the first time I've had a real kind of role in product direction where we're taking it. And I think to kind of put that into context, take a step backwards. I was previously a pen tester, a GRC consultant, spent a number of years in the big four other consulting firms all over the globe, doing everything from kind of physical and social engineering testing to breach response, instant response, and then all the way through to kind of finding a kind of niche and kind of Silicon Valley type startup cultures and helping them progress from kind of zero to something where they could then go and sell to a company you've heard of. And in one of those, I ended up kind of coming across Wistic as a company and seeing this concept of trying to avoid the whole questionnaire issue, which has caused so many problems for any small company trying to sell to a larger enterprise. But it was a great idea. I had an advisory capacity with them for a while, while I was in other roles, helping kind of steer and direct them in the right direction. And then they decided to hire a head of security, kind of on my suggestion. And then that ended up being me. So I took a role here. What I find interesting here is because it's a security product in a space that I'm quite familiar and quite interested in. While we kind of build out the security capabilities and functionalities within the business itself, a lot of my time is spent on thinking about what is the future of our product? What does the market want to buy? What would I buy? And what do I think we need to be in five or 10 years? So that's the really interesting bit. It's shaping a market which didn't really exist five years ago. Yeah, I guess... Coming from a practitioner background and getting to be involved in, it sounds like you get a lot involved in the sales cycle, working on product direction. Is that something that you always wanted to do or is it just kind of you ended up in it? I think it comes over time. I think as you transition from kind of consulting to industry, you'll get picked up by salespeople quite a lot to be on calls and try and help them get over the tricky hurdles. I used to work in a database space where they'd be asked questions around access, around kind of how the data is stored or how it's encrypted. And then in this case, it's very much a, a question of, what do I do with this? Like, what time does this save me? How does this save me money? How can I show the business this is something which is useful to us? I think I spend a fair amount of time with salespeople and customer calls. But yeah, I find that really interesting. I think that when I talked about before about building kind of the product for the future, that being a part or a key part of my role, understanding what the customer wants is really important integral to be able to know where they want to go next. Uh, I can only agree with you. Like, it's one of the bits of my role where there's lots of things we're doing, lots of managing people and other things. but getting to speak to customers, understand and drill down into their problems and ask why, why, why is so beneficial. So like 
although sales calls sometimes can be hard work, it, they, they do benefit you a lot. So can you talk us about kind of the size and stage of companies that are in building its information security function? Yeah, so as a company overall, we are at Series B, which we completed this year. And we've just cleared the 100-person mark, which is something I'm fairly familiar with. It's that point where I think you transition from startup to growth or hyper-growth of a company, and you go from onboarding a couple of people a month to a few people a week. So there's a lot of change in kind of IT and also in kind of personnel security. In terms of our security journey, we're SOC 2 Type 2 compliant, certified per se when people say that or use that phrase, and working towards other standards, GDPR, ISO, other things in the coming time. We've built something which is solid that meets the requirements of compliance. A lot of our effort now is about how do we make that scalable? Because as the business scales rapidly, we have to make sure that we can meet that demand. And also, how do we automate it? Like, how much of this can we take out of our hands and take out the manual effort and put it somewhere else? So that my team can focus, like I said, on things that actually bring revenue to the business. Yeah, I know you mentioned SOC 2 there and ISO. Are they the two things that are kind of in demand of you by your customers? Is there any particular other requirements that you've been really pushed to look at? I think that question speaks really to the wider question of why whiskey is full stop, right? SOC became a requirement. As soon as we all went SaaS obsessed, which we all are, uh, we have no infrastructure at all unless it's built in AWS. And that was pretty much the same with my previous company and pretty much the same with multiple companies I worked before that as a consultant. Then that becomes an issue where companies say, well, if I'm going to give you my data or my customer's data and you don't even have the data sent to yourself, like how do I know that you're doing the right things with it? So SOC 2, in the US at least, became the de facto standard that said, this is how we evidence we are doing security adequately. And then wider Europe, Far East, Middle East, ISO is still the standard. Bit more holistic, bit wider, maybe a bit less product focused, but certainly very comparable, a lot of overlap. So what we've seen there is definitely the demand for those two from a sales perspective. And because we deal with a lot of data for kind of supply chain to the people who are involved in those supply chains, we've started to see a lot more questions around privacy, whether that's GDPR or CCPA or the incoming CPRA or the Canadian or Australian standards. And we may ask questions about how do we handle that data? How do we decide who we can communicate? How do we decide who can see what data belonging to which customers, depending on how and when or which way they've shared it? So yeah, we've certainly seen a focus on traditional security standards, but now there's a lot more questions being asked around the privacy and kind of data, I suppose, sensitivity space. Yeah, and we've seen a lot from our customers as well, especially in the US where there's now multiple state laws which are very similar but not the same and they have slightly different things. And we're seeing a lot of challenges for companies where they're operating in multiple states having to deal with multiple different of these regulations that are appearing. I think there's like 12 now in the States of different, well, there might be more last time I checked, but it does seem like a challenge of how to keep on top of that and the different requirements. We're also seeing it in the mind of a culture shift. You go out to like a GDPR coming out in Europe, but everyone was already sort of privacy conscious or cognizant at least of the concept around it. And the US, no one cared. It was just like, yeah, whatever, like it's America, we don't care. Um, <laughs> but things have changed dramatically. Like I find American heads of IT or, or heads of security with truly pure play American businesses, all based stateside, they're now interested in the privacy of their users beyond what the legal requirements are because they think it's the right thing to do. And that didn't exist. Like I say, go back a few years, even, even two or three years, and the question was, what do we have to comply to? The question is now not what do we have to comply to, it's what do we do to protect the privacy and the rights of our, of our data users? Yeah, there's been a big shift, hasn't there, from first of all, just giving a regulation that had some teeth to it where people thought, well, I have to take this seriously to actually like, 
oh, actually, I don't just care about how we deal with data. It's, it's also my data and, and what we'd expect people to do with the data that we give them. And I think as people yeah. become more aware of, well, the breaches and then how information has been used, they're a lot more like, okay, actually, we should be we should safeguard this much better and put more controls around how we manage and retain this data. And that's brilliant for Wistic, right? Because if you, if you look a lot of the recent breaches, so many of them happen downstream of the supply chain, right? So it might not even be your supplier, but it's your supplier, supplier, or your supplier. Like there's four of them, <laughs> fifth party breaches, which has companies going and saying, well, this is my reputational damage. This is me facing fines and penalties. I didn't even know that part even existed, right? I didn't even know they were part of the supply chain and they've been breached and it's come all the way upstream to me. And so that's kind of where, where we play is like trying to educate people that you have to understand where that data moves and ensure there's adequate protections and reviews in place that you know what you don't know because there's too many unknown unknowns and that's what causes a lot of these issues. Yeah, especially when you're using like managed service providers and then they're subcontracting and sub sub like to your point there, you end up in this place where you're like, oh, that, that breach has happened. And then a couple of weeks later, you're like, oh, that actually affected my data because one of our MSPs is then using it. And it just yeah. ends up being this web of how things are impacting one another. So who do you report to? How many people are in your team? And what are your direct reports? So I report directly to the CEO as part of the leadership team here. as one of the VP team, of which is about 10 of us across the entire business. And then my team is made up of kind of two core components. We've got security and IT. We're probably more security. So in IT, I kind of I've got the help desk about the IT projects and people building out and maintaining the infrastructure that we use. And then the security team, we sort of silo. So there's another three to four people in that. And what you've got there is a combination of compliance, GRC-based traditional control work, and then some more technical product-led stuff. So whether that's involvement in security concepts in a product or the vulnerability management piece responding to vulnerability scanners or working with pen testers or even internal testing. So we try and make sure that there's a kind of silo responsibility model says that you own this and you own this, but people work across to make sure that they kind of maintain a pretty large and broad skill set. And that's really key for us, right? If I was in a 500, 1,000 person business, that might be different, but I've got a very small team. Currently, my security team is three people. And that means they've got to be able to do whatever I ask them to do tomorrow. And that could be anything from we need to respond to this vulnerability disclosure request that someone said they found an issue in the product to the fact that a customer is asking about this feature. We need to build out some diagrams or some, some knowledge around that to the fact we need to look into our vulnerability management tool in the product that's doing the SaaS and, and work out what some of that stuff is saying to running pen testing to employee education. Like it's so wide ranging that they have to have like pretty strong knowledge across all of them. That kind of leads into, I guess, hiring for your team. So how, given the broad range of skills that you're looking for, what kind of people do you hire? What kind of people are you looking for? So I think hiring is like the hardest and the most important job you do as a manager in anything, not just in security, full stop. In security, it's particularly hard. Like we band around this like stuff around it being the, the most short-staffed industry on the planet, whatever it might be, right? It, it's probably not. But the more important fact is that people are now cutting onto that. So not only is there a short or small amount of people to the each role, there are also people now who are branding themselves as security because the salaries are high and the jobs are there. They don't necessarily have the experience and knowledge to meet that requirement. So there's a lot of sifting initially to work out like who actually has this knowledge, who's just been an auditor and who actually understands the concepts of security, either technical or kind of risk-based or both. 
And then when I'm trying to hire, I guess, I guess I, so, so we use DNA, like every company has their core values, right? And one for us, or two for us are really important to me, extreme ownership, we talk about a lot, which is someone's ability to, to just take something and do it. And my team know if you interview someone, spoke to them, that I'm very much a, a kind of philosophy that just puts them off the cliff and just hope they work out to fly. And if they don't, we'll bandage them up afterwards again and put them off again. Like I say, you, you drop them in and let them work out, let them make mistakes, let them learn. Because some of these guys are sharp at night and put into these situations can really flourish and develop skills, which are incredible. And I think the greatest compliment you can have as a security leader is when your team probably move on and go and become heads of security somewhere else because then you've kind of done your job. And the second one for me is startup mentality. It's another thing we talk about all the way And that's this concept that it doesn't really matter what your job is. Like your job is today, what you're doing today. Your job is tomorrow, what you're doing tomorrow. And that could be anything, like I said, from sales to product management to project management to training to working with finance to building an architecture to suddenly working out how we need to reconfigure our AWS in a more secure way to be a specific customer requirement. I think those are the key things for me. So to kind of summarize, like hiring is hard. You have to get it right because you don't really ever want to have to keep churning because that's just a cost of time and energy. But you look, in my world at least, the core kind of skills around people who are going to own and run by themselves and people who will just go and approach anything without fear. And then, if, okay, so underneath that, you're looking for a core set of competencies across as many different security capabilities as possible, but anything they're lacking, you can build. Fantastic. And one of the other things you said is, so how, because I mean, I'm guessing you work very closely with product. So are your team very embedded in working with like product engineering is that one of their core things that they're working with yeah i'd say we do a lot of steering product a lot of testing like we have that kind of interesting space where my security team is probably the customer base or the user base of our product and so we can do a lot to input and say well that doesn't really work <laughs> like that's really good but we want this this and this and i said a lot of it is kind of like saying well we as users in the future want to be here. This is where we expect to be in three years. Like, is the product roadmap taking us there or is it not? Because if it's not, we need to have a rethink. So yeah, I think we're definitely well embedded in that space. We attend what we call PBI, which are kind of those product review meetings for kind of feature sets that are upcoming. Have our say on things or kind of flag issues or concerns, or we might just the directional stuff and just say, you know what, I don't think any of our customers are going to care about that. So what regular things do you do as a leader? So what are the frequency of your calls? I know, obviously, you said you're UK-based, but it's a US-based team. How does that all work? So I think time zones have become irrelevant now. I think this was true before COVID, when I already worked pretty globally as a consultant, but post-COVID, it certainly changed dramatically. We work the way that it fits our lives, and that's become a truth for all of us. And for me, it works. I tend to work a lot more evenings than most people, but then on the flip side, I tend to have a lot more time at lunchtime. Uh, go out with my wife and go running and go out in the peaks and stuff. So that's nice. So it works. And I think we, we all make it work. In terms of what I regularly do, we do a lot of one-on-ones. So we spend a lot of time thinking with the team, finding out what their projects are, what they're working on, what the progress are. I'll then spend time unblocking the things that they're blocked on or giving some guidance and steer. And then most of my general things will be around how can we support marketing more? How can we support sales more? What are the deals that are stuck and how can we help them block them? the product stuff around kind of how and where are we going? And there's much more fine granular pieces under the product. They're like, okay, these are the next few pieces in the roadmap. Uh, Jake, you might need to step in and actually give a lot more direction on these specific ones and we'll build out weekly syncs on those. Then as the leadership team, we do fairly regular syncs on a, on a small technical leadership team. So myself, the VP of engineering, VP of product and the CTO, we'll do kind of a couple to three times a week. And then as a wider business leadership team, at least once a week. So a lot is kind of, 
I suppose, from the sky view these days for me as a, as a leader is finding out where we're at in each of these individual places or journeys and then working out where my time and effort is best spent to bring those forward or to unblock them when they're stuck. Fantastic. So where are you spending most time currently and what are the key priorities you focus on for the next 12 months? I think it's always the same in this kind of products, and it depends on your familiarity with kind of growth products. You, you kind of tested a concept as a startup and proved that it worked. People bought it. And then the other greatest compliment is you don't have competitors you didn't have five years ago, right? So that says that we've tested a market, people bought the product, they liked it. We've now got competitors and we verified this is a genuine, real place to play. And I think beyond that, there's two things that always occur. One is how do you drive revenue? How do you keep building it? Because your investors before Series C are going to come back and say, how are you making more pipe? How are you making more money? So a lot of time, and that breaks down to two areas for me. One is how do we help sales with GTM, go-to-market strategy? How do we talk to, how should you talk to a CISO like myself? What's the, going to be their pain points? What things are going to trigger them versus what aren't? What types of industries right now are more sensitive or worried than others? Which ones can you play and which ones are you going to find it harder to get into for regulatory purposes? So I think that's a core one. And marketing as well, like how do we make this message louder? What conferences should we be at? What should we be saying? How should we be saying it? Who should we be saying it with? Things like this, right? Sitting with people like Shortcloud and partnerships where we can say, okay, we've got common goals. We've got common thoughts around things. Let's take those both for wider audience and speak about why this stuff matters. So I think a lot of it is revenue driven. And the second is product. There's two parts to that again as well, right? How do you build out your product to be what it should be? How do you make sure that roadmap keeps moving? Because you've now got competitors, you've got to stay ahead of them. How are you doing that? And then obviously the, the security, my biggest concern is if we're doing that and we're iterating fast and our engineering team like doubled in the last six months, how are we making sure we're doing that securely? How are we teaching people secure development practices? How are we catching those vulnerabilities early? Sexy term these days of shifting left. Like how are we getting early into the dev cycle? to make sure that we do things properly before a pen tester comes or worst case, before a customer looks at it and goes, what's that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so much more in terms of this secure by design, making sure that you're working with engineering, that they're, you're working together and that it's not seen as like, oh, that security's problem. And engineering, like you're just blocking us from doing things. It's like, no, we're doing it the right way from the beginning and working together. And like you said before, the question I asked is like, are you working closely together? I mean, that's the answer, isn't it? Having teams like using kind of the DevOps model for security, there's nothing stopping you saying, actually, we can embed security in at the same place and make sure you've got a voice at the table and things are done properly from the beginning. Yeah, I think you've got DevSecOps, right? Another kind of buzz term at the moment in our world. But what that really means is depends on who you ask. I think the key for me is always actually taking security and putting it in engineering. Every time I've gone into a business and gone as head of security, I've now done twice in a row. They haven't had that role. And they said, where do you sit? Where do you report? And I've gone engineering. Like, did you sit outside of that in the sales or marketing side? You're effectively just an auditor. Like, you're just there telling them what they should do. And you are a cost center. If you sit in engineering, and you have to have the technical knowledge and now to be able to sit there and have those conversations. But you can influence the business far more by sitting with the people that are building than you can with sitting outside just telling them what they can and can't do. Because engineers are very smart people, especially in my world. And they will find ways to subvert whatever you tell them. <laughs> if the respect and trust isn't there, it doesn't matter what you say. So that, that's always the core part. Be in engineering and be respected and trusted in engineering. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, like if you're just seen as this thing on the side that's just telling them all the time, you've done this wrong, you've done this wrong, they're going to figure their way around it either to make it quicker, 
and you're not working to the same goal, right? I mean, if you're not with them in the same team, their goal is to deliver things fast. Your goal is to deliver them secure. Ultimately, they need to be together <laughs> and you're doing it as a combined thing because otherwise you're just going to say, we're focused on security, we're focused on speed and it just doesn't get anywhere. So what do you think you're doing at the moment that's really working? It's a good question. Hopefully the answer is it is working. Um, I, I think one key thing is being everywhere. Security now permeates every part of the business. And particularly if you're selling a security product, you now definitely permeate every part of the business. So for me, having the relationships, I said, the trust and the knowledge of what's going on in every part of my business, be it from sales to product to marketing to whatever it might be, then that's really important. And specifically, the relationships that happen in engineering, so CTO, VP of Eng, and VP of Product, those are really important. If you can maintain those relationships, I think that's a massive win to start with. What we're doing really well is automating. We use a lot of products, and if I'm name dropping them, feel free to scrub them later. But like, we work on how we make things it's completely easy, right? fine. So, Don't worry about it. <laughs> so two compliant gets easier when you use stuff like Draft or Bant or Tugboat Logic. Like pen testing gets easier with people who use real time data, like Shorecloud or Cobalt or someone else, right? It, it gives you an accessibility platform. You can look at like how do you improve your posture on kind of Google Workspaces for so things like Do Control or. Well, cloud security for us is lace work, but there's also awkward other products. Everything which takes what traditionally kind of a manual SOC type function and automate it, that makes it like a lot easier because suddenly my people can do things that are more useful, more interesting. And the second thing that we're doing well, and it's really just something I've learned from multiple war wounds, is build for scale. Like I've been through this multiple times now where we've built really good functions and then the business has doubled and they haven't worked anymore. We've had to rebuild again. So I think taking those lessons learned and building for scale from day dot is something we're doing really well. And then hiring, like I've got a fantastic team of people who are smarter and sharper than I am. And that's really the key, right? If you can hire the right people, then you're never going to have a problem. I think the other thing there is like, I guess it's same similar for us as size, like when it's not working, like making that decision early and say, look, this doesn't work. Let's just not throw it away, but let's just start again because you can. It make it so much easier in a smaller company to kind of react and move. So what are the biggest challenges that you think that you're having in terms of the market at the moment? Well, I think you just said one in your, that at the end of your last statement before you phrase that question yeah. is a willingness to iterate. I mean, Silicon Valley is obsessed with break it and build it, right? And I think that's true. You've got to be willing to be wrong. And not that we think it's wrong, but that's often the way that the market goes, right? What we think is the right product now isn't the right product in a year's time. And definitely it's in the right product in two years' time. So I think the biggest challenge is forecasting where we think it'll go, but then not being afraid to be wrong and to say, actually, yeah, that's not right. Let's shift all these things around in the roadmap, or let's just scrap some of these and let's focus all our time on this. And we did we just recently spun up an engineering team on to focus on one key principle because we see that as being really core going forward around this concept of what we call zero touch assessments. Meaning that rather than having to even, not even having to respond or send a questionnaire that's that shorter or more fluid, you can just view a profile and there's sufficient data there from live-fed APIs and from third-party data sources and stuff that are being pre-built by the customer themselves to just approve them on a click. And the speed and time and money that saves, we've got customers as part of our security first initiative, people like Asana, Okta, various other kind of big names, who use it as a revenue driver. They can tell their CRO, like genuinely, how many deals happened where a profile was shared and how much faster their deals were and therefore how much money they helped generate for the company. Uh, and I think for us that that's the biggest challenge, right? Is we are 
not only creating a product for a market which is new, but also educating a buyer. We're trying to find how do we explain that to people? This isn't just about securing a supply chain, but this is also about saving you money and improving your sales process. So do we want to speak to the CRO? Probably. Do we want to speak to the head of security? Probably, because he's probably got the budget, right? So I think that one of our biggest challenges is not just working out the product and what it should be, but working out the audience and educating them to understand why this is very good for them. I think that's true in most kind of startup courses. If you come to market and try and shape a part of the market yourself, then you've got to not only design one that people want to buy, but also explain to them why they want to buy it and help them understand that they want to buy it. And that's not easy. It's really not, especially if, I mean, we've launched newer products and you've got to go and find that new person to talk to. You've then got to get that conversation with them. And like you said, you need to, if they don't know who you are, it's very hard to have that initial conversation. Like, we're brilliant, but, (laughs) and you have to say some, you understand their pain points. Because if you're not credible in front of them, you don't understand the pain points. You don't understand their wants and needs. It makes it really, really hard to sell into those people. But it is very interesting because you've got two very different ends. You've got obviously a sales team that you're trying to embed and sell to, and obviously a security team. And I guess traditionally it's been easier to sell to a security team because they understand what you're talking about. How have you find like trying to take a technical thing and sell it to a sales team? To shift to the message and the rhetoric, like we've always been comfortable in the tech space and to security people to understand that you have to assess your vendors. This makes it a lot easier. Use Wistic. It'll save you time and money. Bingo, right? And you're getting hammered by your salespeople to respond to potential customers who have issued a questionnaire. You can respond to it by building out a profile with pre-built questionnaires and pre-answered and here's all your documents. And in the future, you can feed the APIs and other stuff, right? And send that out to them through Salesforce. Bingo, problem solved. And that's great. But we want to expand and change the way this is done. And that means you've got to permeate through wider parts of the business. So yeah, you've got to get into sales and now go to sales and say, the message is no longer about the fact that you're doing questionnaires because you're not. And the message is no longer about you responding to potential customers because you're sending that to security. My message to you is, if your security team is using this, it will make your deals quicker. If your deals are quick, you'll close more before QM, you'll all make more money and you'll drive the business further. So it's very much completely changing how we approach them. That conversation is not about the intelligence of the vendor space or how we're changing that or how that's been in the past. It's simply around a few key points of this makes deals faster. This makes your security team able to respond to more quicker. That means you close deals faster and more efficiently. That means you make more money. Make more money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And to a salesperson, I think ultimately speed, more money, close deals quicker. It definitely resonates. Exactly. Um, one of the other things then, so what are your biggest areas of concern at uh, the end of this year, heading into next year? What's top of your mind? You're always concerned about having holes in your products, especially if you're a newbie or a new player. Like It's impossible to have 100% coverage of 100% of the product. So you're always nervous about that. And you're always preparing your breach responses to disaster recovery, your BC processes, testing them, drilling them, make sure you know what would happen if something did happen. I think then... The points I made earlier about scale, I know what happens here. A lot of that business hasn't been through this kind of scale, but we're probably going to double our company in the next 12 months. And that means you need to be ready for that from a lot of standpoints, whether you are, as I said, a security and IT function about spinning people up, educating them, getting them onto platforms and making sure they're doing things in a compliant way to all those new engineers means a lot more product, which means how do you make sure all that product is being built and developed in a secure fashion? To the fact there's a million new salespeople and 
how do you educate them about the go-to-market strategies and support that volume of new customer base or new customer conversations? So scale makes you nervous. So I, I think that's definitely one truth. And I think third, there's not necessarily nerves, but more excitement is we're going to go to new markets that we've not been in. We have always sold traditionally to tech, which is what most Silicon Slope and Silicon Valley companies do first. They sell to tech uh, because it's our home. We, we all understand each other and it's kind of like one giant fraternity. And now we need to go into different spaces and make that knock on effect, working with people like ShortCloud and various other consultants in the big four in the cyberspace. And then going to use our product, either using the profiles of vehicle to deliver assessments or using the product itself to perform an engagement of, say, 100 or 200 assessments for a large scale bank or a multinational. And that means that we both need to bring the product up to the requirements of those kind of customers, but also we need to bring a lot of our internal processes up to those kind of customers. And so I think that's also something that always makes you slightly nervous. You're going to have to change and mature rapidly to make sure that you get things right, because you don't get two chances with a Goldman Sachs or a PwC or every month, right? You get, you get one shot. <laughs> yeah, you get one shot with them, and they're traditionally very hard to get into. And then when you get there, they have all kinds of things. that They pull you in weird and wonderful ways that you've never even thought about <laughs> before, you have a, before you're in there. So can you talk me through, like, I know you mentioned briefly earlier, but like, what are the skills that you look for when hiring an information security professional? What, like, what three things? Three things. I think number one has got to be knowledge. Now, I don't go and look for people who have a specific degree, specifically, definitely not security. I'd be more interested in general computing or software engineering that shows that they've got technical aptitude understanding. But I think a background of understanding a broader set. So I believe that it's very hard to later teach technical understanding of how components go together, how cloud infrastructure works, how APIs function. It's much easier to teach GRC type stuff around vendor risk or compliance or policy documentation or training. So I'm really focusing on, I want these. Great if you've got this too, but I can teach you this if you don't. Number two is definitely hustle, like an ability to just get on with things, um, to just do what's asked of you or even do the things that I don't ask of you. My team are fantastic because they'll come and say, this was a problem we had and I'm waiting, I'm literally about to respond and they'll say, this is what we did to fix it. And my response is, cool, thanks. And that's the kind of person I think you need. And then what's number three? I would say number three is a willingness to keep learning. You've got a core skill set. You've got to hustle to do things. And then you've got to be willing and ambitious to go somewhere. A desire to be something more than you are now. Whether that is someone who comes in and says, I want to be a pen tester in five years but I'm going to learn my technical security around products here so I can go and then shift to a consulting specter. That's great. I want to be a head of security. Great, let's build you the skill set. Like, I want to stay here until we IPO and retire on a beach. Fine. Like, I, whatever you want to do. But having the willingness to learn the things that will get you to that point and knowing where that point is means that someone has a plan and that means that they're valuable at that point. I would say on the flip side, the question you didn't ask is what three things do not look for as someone that you hire? <laughs> was literally where um, I was going like <laughs> I might have said a lot of people on this but I, I believe in calling a spade a spade or a shovel a shovel for my American friends and number one is I don't know for auditors so I think there is a time and place and they are very useful brilliant people but, but they're not great in startups or growth companies at building out security functions because they are the no people and that's dangerous the flip side of the hustle transferring people from big enterprise to small startup I found is very hard the culture shift is difficult they expect 
very stringent reporting lines, a very strict box of what you do, and a whole set of kind of metrics that I just don't have time to deal with. And number three, I think, is, yeah, people who don't play well with others. That's also really important, right? That's always the key thing. If you, you want to build in a small team and a small company, you want to build a family environment. I think we've got that here. Like our DNA is very much about building like a culture where people want to be. We, we also about prioritizing self. And that means like actually being so good at your job that you can automate a lot of it away, spend less time sitting at a laptop and spend more time with your family and friends. And we want to do the same and build a culture where people want to be together, work together, collaborate together, be intelligent together. And if that means that we all end up working less hours a day and spending more time at home, then everyone wins. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you mentioned around, like, I'm kind of intrigued. So there's all these cyber training courses and certifications. What are your thoughts on them? Is there any particular ones if you were looking that you look for, or is it just not an area that you worry about? So I've got a load of them because you have to have them, right? CISSP, the SSCP, the various IAP privacy ones, yeah. the SISMs. Like I've done a whole host of them. They give you core fundamental knowledge, but they're multiple choice questions, right? which you can cram and pass. And you have to have them to demonstrate that you've built that core knowledge to begin with, but they don't mean a lot. The one that I do care, if someone comes with an OSCP, so the, the pen testing certification, like I care, like I noticed that. I've done that, it's really hard. And the exam's 24 hour caps of the flag, and it's really hard. So that one, like I said, I can teach a lot of the risk and compliance stuff, but I can't teach someone to understand technical concepts. And no matter how much you are focused on internal audit or compliance or certifications, you have to understand technical and logical security to make any of this make sense. Even privacy, that's true. Privacy by design, right? A lot of it is very technical. So I think that's the one that really matters. You've got real hands-on technical, not just pen testing, but hands-on technical security experience. Then those ones stand out to me. If they're multiple choice based questions, I say, great, you've taken some time, you've put some effort in, you've spent probably some of your own money and you've done enough to get past it. So you've clearly got some competencies and some skills, but that doesn't give you a foundational knowledge that I can use and make good use of tomorrow. Yeah, practical experience is always much better or even like just the get up and go. Like when you see someone, you're like, actually, the willingness to learn and you're like, actually, yeah. I, can, I can pick this person up and I can definitely do something with so how are you measured and what does success look like? Two questions. I think we're trying to work that myself sometimes. Um, <laughs> so I think we look at trying to be a leader in one of the things I just talked about, which is about revenue driving. How can we look internally and say to our customers that buy our product, how many times was our profile shared? How early was it shared? Is the conversion rate higher when it's shared versus not shared? We have different profiles, kind of bronze, silver, gold with various levels of sharing. Does it affect which one of those we shared to how much revenue we drive? Let's talk about how we make money. We are a profit center, not a cost center, right? That, that, that's kind of key one. Key two is also the compliance piece. If we don't keep our certifications and keep our compliance posture, we can't sell our product. So I am very much on a, on a percentage to make sure we maintain those. And number three is, is the workforce, I guess you'd say. Like how many of those complete the training, are educated, understand concepts, are integrated into security enough to understand that what we do and why we do it and, and the who, what, what, how, why, and when. I say the last one, the kind of side that we talk about a lot, which is probably not specifically in my job description, is, is really leading and guiding that product. So it's hard to measure that in a metric, but if I'm not inputting valuable and useful information in terms of where we should be in a year, then I'm not doing my job properly or efficiently. Okay. So if you had one wish from all the problems that we have in the security world that we hear lots of to solve, what would it be? 
community. You go to LinkedIn and the first time someone gets breached, which we know happened this week with Rockstar and Uber and other people, like the first time it happens, there's just everyone slaying them for how they got hit by something, right? It's always like, oh, why didn't they update this? Or like you go back to like kind of the biggest ones you've had, oh, why didn't they patch this? Why didn't they maintain that? Oh, it was all a, a sham security posture. Like I've been there. I've done breach remediation on major global airlines and I've now worked in building businesses several times. It's really, really hard to cover everything all the time. And so I think that as a community, we need to be better at actually not just lifting each other up and say, don't worry, it's fine, but actually like taking that community field to exchange information. If you look at where I, if I'm asked where the future of Wistic is, I say that it's simple. We're in an ecosystem where we take LinkedIn and build it to probably mostly security practitioners. You don't just come and share your profile and look at someone else's profile. You come and say, look, Matt, Shortcloud, he's using, well, he's using Shortcloud as pen testers, or he's using this product for this, he's using that product for that, or that's how he does DR and VC testing annually. And I go, that's a great idea. Let me contact that vendor or try and steal that piece of information or try and take that approach. We learn, we build, and we iterate together so that we are more solid globally rather than just constantly scratching and attacking each other when something goes wrong. Yeah, I mean, with the one that you spoke about, with the Uber and Rockstar one, all you've seen every single day is just people saying, well, they should have done this, should have done that. It's like, you don't want to call excuses, but size and scale, it is almost impossible to keep on top of all of this stuff all of the time. And I think it's easy to, like you say, to from the side say that's not good enough rather than going actually what could we all learn from this and what could we apply and i think it doesn't build a trust culture does it when you've basically like linkedin tends to do this but you end up with a lot of people just going well i we wouldn't have done that and it's like well don't poke people in the eye while they're on the floor it's, it's not particularly helpful yeah and the word you point is the one right is trust we talk about a lot as a company we talk about a lot as, as a team and i think as a culture it's something we need to work on is building trust between relationships, between companies, between projects, between individuals. Like that's when you build that web that you get a lot stronger. And I think that's the key, right? People should have gone through it and gone to Roxxon and said, okay, that's right, problem happened, fine. Let's, and we know why it happened, but let's work back to why did the why happen? And let's learn from those things so that we don't make the same mistakes, although we make sure that other similar companies are in the same position. Yeah, because if you if you follow it back, it's okay. Was the security team underfunded? Was this happened? Did this happen? Like, there's a lot of like, actually, rather than just saying they should have done this. Like, to your point, is what were the things that got to that position, and how can we learn from it? Rather than just saying, well, they should have just fixed it. Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem, right? Those conversations do happen, but they happen over dinners and in behind closed doors. <laughs> they don't. They don't happen publicly. And so, I think publicly, we need to be better at having those conversations. So. I really, really appreciate your time, Jake. It's been great. What other security leader should we have on this podcast? I would recommend a guy I've worked with quite closely. His name's Dennis Horn. He's the head of infrastructure security for Maui Gym Sunglasses in the US, who you might also come across because it's a Liverpool fan. They actually sponsor Man U, so unfortunately for you. <laughs> but no, he's a great guy who knows a lot about building global security and privacy practices. Fantastic. So thanks, Jake, for your time. Um, can you let our listeners where they can contact you? Can you, We are happy to share your LinkedIn so they can uh, get in contact with you if you've got any questions. Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn or directly jbenedez at willistic.com. If you need the spelling out surname, I'm sure it'll be somewhere listed on the podcast. Um, but no, I'm always happy to have any conversations that are uplifting and building. Perfect. Thank you.